Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 31, it says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, and the, the price of him on whom the price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious, had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to him, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Now, as you can see, there's a lot here and we'll see how far we get tonight. But there's actually more going on here than is recorded in Matthew. And you're going to see that in a little bit. Now, as it turns morning, we see in the beginning of chapter 27, when it turns morning, the Jewish council of elders and religious leaders make their official verdict that Jesus should be put to death. Now, they, as we've already seen, they'd already decided long before this that, they, that he would be put to death. They had been plotting that for a long time. But now they're making it official and public. Now, Matthew then tells us what happens to Judas. Matthew's the only one that really records what happens to Judas after this. 
As you're going to see in just a little bit, Luke also records it in the book of Acts. So we're going to take a look again. Look again at Matthew 27. It says in verse 3, When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, and he brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What's that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, Jump over here with me to Luke, sorry, to Acts chapter 1, and let's see what Luke says here in Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26. We're going to get a little bit more information in the book of Acts, starting in chapter 1, verse 15. <clears throat> this is after the resurrection of Jesus. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that field was called in their own language, Ekeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his place of office." So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, Lord, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And of course, when they cast lots for them, the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, there's a couple of things I want to bring out tonight about Judas's situation. We see from putting Matthew's account, Mark and Luke and John don't record Judas killing himself. We see, though, from Matthew's account of this and from Luke writing in the book of Acts what happened, that Judas went and he, he, he changed his mind about what he had done. He went back and he told the leaders, you know, if it betrayed innocent blood, they go, what's that to us? You do whatever you want. And uh, he threw the money into the temple and he went off and he hung himself. Now, Luke adds now in the book of Acts the fact that we know now that not only did he hang himself, at some point either the rope broke or the branch broke or whatever. And after he died, he fell and hit the ground and his body burst open. And it just was a horrible, horrible end to his life. Now then, the uh, religious leaders say, hey, we can't put this money in the temple treasury. It's blood money. And so they decided to buy this piece of field and called the potter's field, not knowing that they were actually fulfilling prophecy. But notice that they're quoting, go back to Matthew 27, and it says in Matthew 27, starting in verse 9, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and then they quoted from there. Go with me to Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. In Zechariah chapter 11, you can see in verses 12 through 13, 
Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now, this is where Matthew's quoting from. It's in Zechariah. But he says it was, it was written in Jeremiah. Have we found a problem now? Is, this, is the Bible wrong? We got a problem? Well, hopefully you all understand. The scripture is very clear. Every word is God breathed. To help you out with the fact that he said it was written in Jeremiah, although we find it in Zechariah, the answer is this, and I'll show you this from scripture. The Old Testament, the, the Jewish Bible, what we call the Old Testament, was broken up into three parts. There was the law, first five books of the Bible, which is the Pentateuch, the law. There were the writings and the prophets. What some people call the law and the Psalms and the prophets. The section called the prophets weren't in the order that we have them in our Bible today. Jeremiah was the first one of all the prophets. All the prophets were put together in the Jewish Bible. The first one was Jeremiah. So when you're talking about the prophets, you would say it was written in Jeremiah. That's why it was written in Moses is talking about which books? The law, which is the first five books written by Moses. Because Jeremiah was the first book in their Bible of all the prophets. A lot of times they would just say it's written in Jeremiah, meaning all the prophets. We know specifically it was written in Zechariah chapter 11. Go real quick to Luke chapter 24. You'll see Jesus refer to the Old Testament in this way. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's met the two men on the road to Emmaus. They've now gone back to the upper room. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, he says to all the disciples that were there in the upper room, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Again, Jesus pointing out that their Bible was broken up into those three sections. The law, the prophets, the Psalms. Some people call it the law, the writings, and the, and the, the prophets. The reference is Luke 24, verse 44. So, Matthew's not wrong by saying it's written in Jeremiah. He actually was written in Zechariah, but Jeremiah referred to all of the prophets of their Bible. But there's something else here that I want to take some time to deal with, even more time than we've just taken to look at that first part. Many people over the years have tried to use this story of Judas, we read here in Matthew, to say that Judas is in heaven now because of God's grace and Judas's remorse. A great debate has happened over the years as to, is Judas in heaven? Has Judas been forgiven? Because Judas changed his mind. Judas felt sorry for what he did. And because of the grace of Jesus and because of the attitude of Judas, a lot of people try to say that Judas is in heaven. I would love to say he's in heaven, but if I told you that he was in heaven, I would be going against a lot of Scripture. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to show you what the Bible actually says about Judas. And it'll be very helpful for a lot of us as well. Don't just learn, listen tonight as a, well, this will be information about Judas. No, there's something God wants to tell us, and especially those of us who have family who have not fully trusted Christ as their Savior. Judas does change his mind about taking the money. But all the scriptures that surround Judas's story clearly state that he went to hell. Go with me to, again to Acts chapter 1, that passage we just read. I read further into it for a reason. I went all the way to verse 26 for a reason. I want to have you go back with me to verses 24 and 25. In Acts chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, listen to what Peter says. He says, And they prayed, and they said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. 
Does it sound like Judas went to heaven? No. It gets even more clear. Go to John chapter 6. Go to John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71. John chapter 6, verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet, yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So Jesus said, I chose you twelve, but one of you is the devil. Go over to chapter 17 of John. It gets even more clear. In John chapter 17, verse 12, listen to what Jesus prays in the garden right before the cross. He says, he's praying to the Father. He says in John 17, 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. If you remember from John chapter 6, Jesus said that he has come to do the will of the Father, that he would lose none that the Father has given him. And that's one of the reasons we know we're saved. If we've been sealed by the Spirit of God, that's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That's a confirmation that we're His children. By the way, your confirmation of the fact that you're saved is not that you prayed a prayer or that you were baptized or your church member. Your confirmation that you're truly saved is the Spirit of God is within you. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says this. He says, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? And then he goes on and says, unless you fail the test. The evidence of true salvation is the fact that He seals us with His Spirit, and we know that we're His. And Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says, His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're His children. Now, Jesus said in John 6, I will lose none that the Father has given me, but will raise them up on the last day. What does He pray here in the garden about Judas? Let me read it to you again, John 17, verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Does it sound like Judas is in heaven? No. Go to John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, look at verses 8 through 11. In John chapter, eight, chapter 13, verse 8, Peter said to Jesus, remember he's washing their feet, trying to wash their feet. Jesus, and Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Again, there's clear distinction in the scripture that Judas went to his own place. He went where he belonged. He was a devil. He was a son of destruction from the beginning. And he was lost. Go to Matthew chapter 26. Here's a, here's a clincher. Matthew 26, look at verses 20 through 25. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 20, they're in the upper room that night. They just finished taking the Lord's Supper. In Matthew 26, verse 20, And when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, It is he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me, who will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You've said so. Folks, Judas is not in heaven. The scripture is very clear that he went to hell. But people say, But Jim... Isn't, isn't Judas's sorrow for what he did repentance? I mean, he changed his mind. He changed his mind. It says so right there. Isn't that repentance? 
That's why we need to build our theology from the scriptures and not what makes us feel better. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. As you're turning there, I'm just kind of set the stage of the context of what Paul is talking about. Paul had been pretty hard on the church there in Corinth, and he felt bad that they were hurt by his words. But then he says to him, but then again, I'm not, I don't feel too bad about it. And here's why. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Being sorry is not repentance. Being sorry and saying, man, I shouldn't have done that is not repentance. I remember years ago, I was dealing with a young couple who actually uh, had been married just for a little while, and they weren't able to have any children. And folks, please don't hear me say that if you're not able to have children, this is why. But in this situation, as I was meeting with them and praying with them in my office, I was pastor in Chicago, the Lord kind of spoke to my heart, and there was something He was doing in their life that He wanted me to speak to. And I asked them this question. I said, when, before you all got married, did you have sexual relations with each other before you were married? They kind of put their heads down. They said, yeah. I said, well, you know, the Bible says that that's sin. They go, yeah. I go, did you all just decide, well, let's get married? Or did you ever take the time to say what we did was wrong and we repent and we're going to stop? They said, all we decided was we're just going to get married and that'll make it all right. I said, well, you know what? I'm going to challenge you because I knew they were believers. So I'm going to challenge you to go kneel by your bed tonight and say, Lord, we started in this aspect of our relationship in a way you had not designed. And we just thought, well, we feel bad about it. We'll just do better. We never said this was wrong and we need your forgiveness. And they did. They went home that night and they kneeled before their bed and they said, Lord, we started in this part of our relationship in a way that you did not design. And it was wrong. And we're not only sorry, we're repentant and we need your forgiveness in this area. And folks, it wasn't a week or two later, they were pregnant. Again, in that situation, God was using it to get their attention about that one thing. There's a difference between feeling sorry and actually repenting and seeking God's forgiveness. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Let me show you what I mean. There's more scripture that kind of talks to that. But godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Listen to Hebrews 12 verses 15 through 17. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, that's some sobering words right there. Esau gave up his privileges and the blessing that was his because he was just for the sake of instant gratification because he thought he was starving. He gave up his future reward because of that sin. And, and he, here the Hebrew writer ties sexual immorality in that same way. And there are riches and blessing of God for obedience. And Esau wanted the blessing. But even though he sought it with tears, he didn't repent. And he couldn't get the repentance. Let me say something to you clearly. Listen closely. Being sorry is not repentance. Esau wanted God's blessings, but not God. The fate of those who know the truth, but reject it, is worse than that of others who have less revelation. Go back to Hebrews chapter 10 and look at verses 26 through 31. 
Hebrews chapter 10, look at verses 26 through 31. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, this knowledge of the truth is how to be saved, and this going on sinning deliberately is to reject trusting Jesus as your Savior. If we go on sinning in this way without, after receiving knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, listen to me very carefully. This passage is not saying that there are believers who are going to lose their salvation. What it's saying is this. If God has opened your eyes to how to be saved, if he's shown you your sin and your need of a savior, you can be sorry for what you've done in your past all you want. It's not until you repent and go to God for forgiveness that you will actually be forgiven. Being sorry is one thing. Repentance is another. A godly sorrow leads to repentance that brings salvation. When it was Jim, it says he was sanctified. Well, hopefully you all understand. You've heard me say this before. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the whole world. It's already been paid for. It's finished. Paid in full. The message of salvation is not if God's mad at you, but if you ask him, he'll change his mind and forgive you. The message of salvation is Jesus already died for your sins. He's already paid for your sins. And he now says to you, acknowledge your sin, acknowledge your need of a savior, come to him to rep in repentance. And that forgiveness that has already been paid for for you will be yours as you receive it in faith. I hear too many people that brag about their former way of life. Man, back in the day, I was the biggest drinker. Did you ever repent? Are you still proud of that? See, godly sorrow leads to repentance. Listen closely. If Judas was truly repentant, he would have run to Jesus and said, I sinned. I need your forgiveness. I need your forgiveness. I need your mercy. But all he was was sorry for what he had done. And then he went and killed himself. He was tortured. Folks, beware of thinking you can just ask God's forgiveness at the end. He determines when your last opportunity for repentance is. Once that door is shut, it's too late. Yes, sir, go for it, Rick. Repentance needs to be granted. Yeah, if it's true repentance, God knows your heart. You'll receive the forgiveness that comes with true repentance. Just saying the words, I repent, God knows your heart. I, I don't have time to take you there, but if I were to show you John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, it says that when many people saw the miraculous signs that Jesus did, they believed in his name. We would all say that they were saved. The very next verse says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. And he didn't need man to testify about man. He knew what was in their heart. They believed, but they really didn't. There are a lot of people that say they believe. But the real evidence of salvation and the real evidence of true faith is a repentance and a full trust in Jesus Christ. And like I said, there's too many people in the world today that take the grace of God and they'll say, well, I'm just going to wait until my deathbed and I'll just ask God to forgive me. You're not guaranteed that opportunity. And as the scripture shows, there comes a point after having received the knowledge of the truth, there comes a point where God says your chance to repent is over and you can seek it with all the tears you want. It'll be too late. These are sobering things to learn from Judas. Folks, 
Let the scripture speak. But thank God also for the fact that those of us who have truly repented, those of us who truly have trusted him, thank God that his scripture also clearly says that we're sealed by him. We don't have to hold on to our salvation. He's the one holding on to us. And so I share that with a room full of people here who I believe most of, if not all of you, are believers. And there are people watching online. But that's why all through the book of Hebrews, all through Paul's writings, as he wrote to churches and to Christians, he would say, but watch out. Oh, as long as you hang on and you hold firm to the truth to which you were taught. Why does he keep saying that? Because as you speak to a room full of people, only God knows who's truly saved and who's really not. I'll get right to you in a second, Jill. But let's think about Judas for a second. When Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, did everybody in the room have an idea who it was? They all had no idea. They were all fooled. But Jesus wasn't. Go ahead, Jill. Exactly. The proof of it is the fruit of the Spirit. If you were to go back in Hebrews chapter 6, where it talks about this as well in another context, it then goes on and it says, Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, sometimes produces a crop, sometimes it produces thorns and thistles. And the Bible says the evidence that we're truly saved and truly receive God's forgiveness in His Spirit is how we, our life looks after this so-called repentance. If it's true repentance, there'll be evidence of the Spirit, love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and gentleness. Again, it's not our job to determine who's saved and who's not. The Bible's real clear that we're not trying to separate the weed and the wheat. But Jesus himself taught very clearly in Matthew 13 that there's going to be weeds among the wheat. And Satan's going to sow them in our churches and in, in God's field. We're to leave that alone. Trust me, as a pastor for many, many years, I wanted real quickly to decide, I don't think that person's saved. And, I, you know, and that, that's not my call. That's not my call, and that's not your call. But you know about you. You know what the Spirit of God's saying to you. Judas was sorry for what he did. He never repented. And that's what we need to know. There's a difference. Now, go ahead. I'm sorry. Here, go ahead, Rick. Yeah. He walked with Jesus. And that's actually, if you go to 1 John chapter 2, verses 19 and following, it says they went out from us, but they weren't of us. The fact that they went out is evidence that never were of us. Because if they were of us, they would have stayed. The real evidence is not only fruit of the Spirit, like you were sharing, Jill, but over time, you'll see whether or not someone's truly saved. There are people in this room that I'm friends with, and, and, and there's this one couple we hang out with a lot. And I know this one lady in this couple who's been through quite a bit in her life. And she's had every reason to walk away from Jesus. And a lot of times because of how people in the church have treated her. And I've told her many a time, <laughs> it's obvious that God's Spirit's in you because you've had every opportunity to walk away, especially as the church has treated you poorly. But she hadn't gone anywhere. Why? Because her salvation is not, in Jesus, is not in the church, it's in Jesus. And that's the evidence that is for each of us. It's the Spirit of God and the demonstration of that and the fact that even though all this other stuff goes on, we continue. There's going to be those among us who aren't of us. I just hope it's nobody in this room. And if the Spirit of God's speaking to you tonight, or are you online, get it right quick. The day's coming. And don't ever forget that when God brought the judgment on the earth in the days of Noah, God shut the door of the ark. Now, Jesus has to be brought before Pilate because the Jews have no authority to put anyone to death since Rome is ultimately in control of their region. The Roman government must approve of his execution, and if they do, their method of execution is crucifixion, just like Scripture said it would, he would be killed. Isn't that interesting? 
I don't know how many of you have ever taken the time to really look at that and go back and study the history of crucifixion. You can trace it back to B.C. time periods, but the Romans are the ones who took it and mastered it. They came up with gruesome ways to make it worse, to make it embarrassing and shameful. I mean, it was a deterrent to crime. Let's just tell you this. If you knew that you committed these crimes, this was what was going to happen to you. Folks, if you don't know anything about crucifixion, and we'll get into it in a lot more detail when we get into Jesus' crucifixion in the next few weeks, they would hang you on a cross. But man, long before you got hung on the cross, you had been scourged and you had been beaten and whipped, which we see a little bit of tonight in our study, to the point that you could barely stand because your flesh was just gone off the back from here, from the back of the neck all the way down to the middle of your thighs. And then they would make you carry your cross to the place through public courtyards and everywhere to where you were going to be hung. And then they would nail you to the cross through your hands and your feet. And the only way you could get a breath, because you're hanging the only way you could get a breath is to push up with your feet, which would be excruciating on the nail, and pull with your hands just to get enough to get a breath. And if most people didn't die from the bleeding or the nails, they would die from asphyxiation and, and suffocation. But if somehow you were still strong enough to endure that, they would come and break your legs with a sledgehammer so that you couldn't push off anymore. You know what's interesting, though? Go with me to Psalm 22. Again, keep in mind, if the Jews had put him to death, how would they have put him to death? I heard it. Somebody say it. Stoning. Because that's what their law said, how you put people to death. You stoned them. But go with me to Psalm 22. I'm just going to read you a few verses in Psalm 22, written hundreds of years before Jesus. In Psalm 22, look at verse 1, then verses 6 through 8, and then verses 14 through 18. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Look at verse 6. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. By the way, we're going to come back to these verses more and more throughout our study of the crucifixion. Jump down to verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus even came onto the earth in a human form. He'd been on the earth, of course, because he made it. And he'd been on the earth in various times in the Old Testament making appearances in theophanies, as we call them. But between the creation, and his actually coming to the earth as a human being, God through the Spirit, because he sees the future and sees it all, had David write what was going to happen to his, him in his crucifixion in explicit detail. The I thirst, the bones out of joint, the people casting lots for his clothing and piercing his hands and his feet. And if he had, if he had been put to death by the Jews, he would have not been put to death in that manner. But it just so happened that when he was to be put to death, the Jews could not put him to death because they didn't have the authority since they were under Roman authority. 
The Romans had given them a lot of authority to do their laws and their rituals and their religious services and all, but when it came to capital punishment, only the Romans could do it, and it just so happens that their method was exactly what Psalm 22 said it would be. But not only that, the prophecies predicted piercing, being bruised, being crushed, wounds, and stripes. Go with me to Isaiah 53. Depending on your translation, you're going to hear some of those words that I just used. Go to Isaiah 53. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, whoever this he is, grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, and a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, and some of your translations say stripes, we are, all, we are healed all we, like sheep, have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, the prophecies talked about how this one was going to be bru- bruised, beaten, pierced, crushed, striped, if you will, for us. You have a question, Bill, or are you just... Okay, I'm sorry, I saw your hand up there. So, And as you just read... The prophets also foretold, or actually he didn't read because I stopped. Go to verse 7. I didn't read verse 7. The prophets also foretell that he would be silent when all this happened to him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Sound like what Jesus was dealing with or dealing when he was before Pilate and all these people? When he was before the Sanhedrin, again, he wouldn't speak. But Matthew's account of Jesus before Pilate leaves something off that only Luke records. Go with me to Luke chapter 23. There's actually a part of this journey of Jesus on this evening that Luke records and the others don't record. You see, Pilate tries in many ways to get out of being responsible for Jesus' death, for he can find no fault in him and definitely nothing deserving of death. So he finds out that Jesus was from Galilee. I'm going to read you this to you from the scriptures. He finds out that Jesus was from Galilee. And since Herod was in charge of Galilee and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. So he's brought to Pilate. Pilate can't find anything wrong. He doesn't want to deal with it because he doesn't. How can I give this guy a death sentence when there's no reason for death? He finds out. We'll go to Luke 23, verse 1. And Luke 23, then the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction... He sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. 
When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign or miracle done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and one who was mis- sorry the people and said to them, "You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him." Now, we'll just stop right there. Now we see that Jesus not only goes through this trial in the middle of the night, he's not only taken to Caiaphas' house, he's brought first to Annas, then he's brought to Caiaphas, now he's brought in the morning to Pilate. Pilate examines him, can't find any issue. He finds out he's from Galilee. He sends him over to where Herod's staying at that time. They go through all this. Herod wants to see some kind of a miracle or a magic trick, and, and Jesus doesn't perform it. And so he then goes and sends him back after being mocked, sends him back to Pilate. Herod wanted to see Jesus, but mainly as a magician or a sideshow act. Entertainment. Curiosity. I'm going to say it again. There are people that I'm speaking to tonight, not me, the Lord speaking through me, who may be in this room, or may be watching online, either live right now, or you've tuned in and you're watching this later on. And God has been speaking to you, and you know the truth But your level of connection with Jesus is more curiosity. You like the idea of there being a God as long as he can do tricks for you or be there when you pray a prayer and maybe answer something you want because you imagine God being more powerful than you. But you still want to be in charge. You just want him to see you do some things for you because you've heard he can do these things. Be careful. Right now in our globe, everybody's getting all excited about a vaccine. You know why? Because a vaccine is when you get inoculated, if you will, with just a little bit of the disease to keep you from getting the whole thing. There are too many people in this world today that have been inoculated with Christianity. They've gotten just enough to keep them from getting the whole thing. Don't be one of those people. Don't be one of those people. I'm not saying don't get a vaccine. Don't hear me say that. I'm I'm just saying that is how... Many people say, I'm okay. I believe in Jesus. I've heard the stories. I think he's a good man. We've already seen there's a difference between knowing and believing. I'll get right to you, Rick. There's a difference between sorry for what you've done and truly repenting. Go ahead, Rick. We're going to get to that when we get to the crucifixion. When we get to the crucifixion, I'll show you the prophecy in the Old Testament that talks about how he would have no bone broken. And that actually happens as well. But we'll get to that one. But you can't rush me. (laughs) Many have tried. It's all right. (laughs) You're good. I'm glad you're getting, I'm glad you're with me and tracking. But since Jesus was silent, Herod had him mocked and dressed in king's clothing and then sent back to Pilate. Now, interestingly enough, Luke brings out something. And I want to show you this from the scriptures. Interestingly enough, enemies will unite to reject and fight against Jesus. 
Yeah, I'm an enemy of an enemy is my friend. Exactly. Here, Pilate and Herod, probably because of political posturing, weren't buddies. And Pilate thinks, hey, I got a problem here. I don't think I'm able to solve this. This is a tough one. I'll pretend to be nice to Herod and actually give him a pain in the rear. But Herod and Pilate become friends through this. Go to Matthew chapter 22. What do you all know about the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees? Uh, (laughs) Besides the fact that they're all a little crazy, the Sadducees and the Pharisees don't like each other. They don't get along. They're all together in the same religious council and leaders of Israel, but the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in the angels. They don't believe in the spiritual realm. The Pharisees, of course, do. Their whole attitude of theology is different. They're not friends. Go to Matthew 22 and look at verses 15 through 33. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, all flattery. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said Caesar's, and then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Oh, wait a minute, hang on for a second. Didn't we just hear that they were accusing Jesus of saying, Don't pay Caesar? He actually said the opposite. Give Caesar all that's got his name on it. It's got his picture on it. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh, and after them all the woman died in the resurrection, therefore of the seven. Whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered, You're wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together again. Another one, a lawyer, asked him another question. They, they, they don't like each other. The Pharisees tried. And the Sadducees, they try because they're going to one-up the Pharisees because they're going to be able to trip Jesus up. And then the Pharisees find out that the Sadducees are tripped up, so now they bring a lawyer. They're working against Jesus. But we go to Matthew 16 and look at verses 1 through 4. Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show a sign from heaven. Now they're working together. Actually, without realizing it, they were working together. What we saw in Matthew 20, uh, 23 there, or 22, they're working together. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, you can see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are working together. Folks, listen to me. Do you know that the Bible actually said, well, before I answer that, give you this question or a statement, let me ask you a question first. Does the Bible say that man will have hatred toward man? Would we not agree that right now most of the nations don't get along? <laughs> Wouldn't you agree that one of the things that's protected us for many, many years has been these oceans between us to keep us from killing each other? Did you know, and I'm not, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go there. Did you know that Revelation chapter 16 
and Zechariah chapter 12 both talk about how in the very, very last days, every nation will be gathered together in unity against Jesus and the nation of Israel. All these enemies are going to come together to fight against Jesus, to fight against God. What happened between Pilate and Herod is just a microcosm of what's going to happen on the globe. Now, Pilate is very stressed about what to do with Jesus. So he offers the Jews a chance to release Jesus or Barabbas. Now, he chooses Barabbas for a reason. Barabbas was a very dangerous and wicked man. Someone you probably wouldn't want back in society. He was a murderer. He was a thief. He was just, in other words, imagine the baddest dude in prison that you don't want escaping. That's the one he picks. The one that people would say, you know what, much as we want to see Jesus put to death, we don't want Barabbas back out in society. He picks that guy. And so he offers, because every year at the Passover, they would, as a, as a gesture, the Romans would release one of their prisoners. And so as a gesture to the Jews, they offer Barabbas or Jesus to be released. The Jews chose Barabbas to be released rather than Jesus. Look at Matthew 27 again, verse 20. I don't want you to miss this. Notice who's out there persuading the crowd to vote for Barabbas' release. Matthew chapter 27, look at verse 20. Yep. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. Do you think, honestly, this crowd, this is all happening early, early in the morning. Do you think the crowd that has gathered had gathered for the purposes of putting Jesus to death? These are the same people that just a week earlier had been praising him and welcoming him and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But as they're there to see what's going on, all of a sudden the religious leaders and chief priests, they all go working through the crowd and they start saying, ask for Barabbas to be released. Have Jesus put to death. Ask for Barabbas to be released. Have Jesus put to death. Beware of getting sucked into the latest outrage on social media. Satan uses this tool to work up the masses, folks. Be very cautious and wary of anything that is trending. You need to check everything you hear against the scriptures. And unfortunately, we're living in a day and age in which it's very easy to get the information out to the masses. It's very easy to get people into the society and spread those lies and spread those little whispers. By the way, that's why when I came as pastor of this church, they used to have every Wednesday night or one Wednesday night a month, I think it was, what they called family forum, open family forum. And their whole reasoning was it was a chance for everybody to get together in the church. And if they had any concerns or any complaints, they were free to share them. And as soon as I came as pastor, I said, we're stopping that. That's how Jesus got crucified. Because you know what happens in those situations when you give people opportunity to just complain about whatever it is they feel like they have a chance that they feel free to share? You could be sitting in here and you open up a can of worms. Someone could say, well, I think that the Coke machine in the, in the, in the kitchen should be charging a dollar and not 50 cents because, I mean, we're raising, using that to raise money for the youth. And people in the room didn't even know there was a Coke machine. And all of a sudden they're all upset about the price of the, oh, I can't believe we have a Coke machine in the place in the first place. And all this stuff starts going on. And so I said, look, I got no problem with us discussing as a family, church family things, but the leadership's going to determine what we're discussing when we discuss it. And we'll say, we're going to talk about this, the other stuff. And folks, let me just tell you, we're living in a day and age which a lot of you are getting sucked into some of this stuff. There's all these media posts 
I know because you send them to me. Stop. I don't read them. I don't. I got my hands full as it is. And I got plenty to read. And this is going to be a more accurate predictor of what's going on in our globe than the stuff you send me and the latest thing that everybody's outraged about, outraged about. Let me just say this. The Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders went among the crowd and stirred everybody up. And they all started shouting, shouting and yelling, crucify him and give us Barabbas. Go for it. Yes. Pilate, Pilate, is, Pilate offers them. Right, right. Mm-hmm. But in Luke, they refer to Barabbas as the first one who was there for insurrection. It was part, if you put all the puns together, it was insurrection, murder, robber, thief. So they, they're saying, for, I, I guess what, I, what I'm trying to get to is, is, is Pilate saying, look, these people tried to take us over, so, you know, you want Barabbas or this guy Jesus. Meaning Barabbas is so bad. Right. Right. That's exactly what's going on. That's exactly what's going on. There's a, what you've just brought out is, is awesome. I love how you brought out that there's a deeper level of this. Here's this guy. He's causing insurrection. He's, he's against Caesar. Well, let me bring out another guy that had that same problem. And why, why don't you have him released? You know, great point. I've never actually looked at the level, that depth of it. That's pretty cool. I like that. Oh, of course he was. Yeah, because you remember from our passage, go back to Matthew 27. Look, look at uh, verse 18. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. He knew this guy was not only innocent, he knew what was really going on behind the scenes. He's trying everything in his power to help Jesus out or at least take it off his hands, hand him over to Herod. Now it comes back and he's doing everything he can. Pilate is getting pressure from all sides. Yeah, well, you're, getting, you're, gonna re- you're reading my notes, Sheila. Listen closely. Pilate is getting pressure from all sides. His own conscience, he's already realizing there's nothing wrong with this guy. Definitely nothing deserving of death. The Jewish religious leaders are putting pressure on him. The crowd that is now forming is putting pressure on him. Herod was no help, so he added pressure by not helping. (laughs) Jesus is no help because he's not saying anything. And now his wife is sending him notes saying, don't have anything to do with this man, this righteous man, because of a dream she had. Now he's got to deal with her when he goes home. He's getting pressure from all sides. Pilate is getting lots of opportunity to do the right thing, but he doesn't. Now, I'm going to show you from Scripture why, and then show you something about Pilate you may not know. Because he looks like a wishy-washy guy. I'm going to show you from history and from the Scriptures, he's not a wishy-washy guy. Go to Luke 23. I'm going to show you scripturally different reasons that all come together to show us why Pilate doesn't do the right thing. And he gives in to the masses. In Luke 23, look at verses 18 through 25. But they cried out all together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. The third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no guilt in deserving of death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So that Pilate decided that the demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder whom, for whom they had asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Go to John chapter 18. John gives us a little more information as to why Pilate capitulated. 
And John 18, look at verses 28 through 19, 16. John 18, verse 28. When they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, it was early morning, and they themselves didn't enter the governor's headquarters so they wouldn't be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man weren't doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We talked about that earlier, crucifixion. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to them, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's, on the, uh, who's of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What's truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, so do you want me to release you the, to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and berated him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Which is interesting that he would have him beaten if he found no guilt, and we'll deal with that later on in our study next week. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From that point on, from that then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not a friend of Caesar. I would just stop right there. Go to Matthew 27 again. Look at verses 24 through 26. They just said to him, you're not a friend of Caesar if you release him. In Matthew 27, look at verses 24 through 26. Matthew 27, verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hand before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See it to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. So here we see that their voices prevailed. They say, You're not a friend of Caesar if you release Jesus. And a riot was beginning. In the time that we have left here, I need to take a second and explain to you about Pilate's past. Some of you may not know this. For years, I saw Pilate as a wishy-washy individual, but he wasn't. Pilate was a powerful leader and he was a jerk. You see, when other leaders had been there, especially over Jerusalem, the, the Jews had this rule from God's law and their interpretation of it about no carved images, that whenever the Romans would march through, they would carry their flagpoles and banners and things, and they would have these carved images like eagles or whatever on top of their poles. 
And the Jews would always ask the, ask the leaders who were over them, could you please take those off? That offends us, our loss. Our God says we're not to have any graven images. And so other leaders would take them off in deference. When Pilate became leader, he said, I don't care about you that much, and I don't care what you think, and he put them back on. Well, being that type of a leader, he would have some issues with the people that are under his control. And if you do a study of history and Roman history, you'll find that actually prior to this, a bunch of Jews had gone to Rome to appeal to Caesar about the problem they were having with Pilate because of a jerk, the jerk he was and how hard he was on them. And the leadership in Rome pretty much sent a word down to Pilate and said, if you can't handle that little area, you're going to lose your authority. You're going to lose your position with us. If you can't handle them, in other words, the next time we hear that they're getting into a riot and they're upset and you're not governing well, you're out of a job. Their voices prevailed. A riot was starting to ensue. And they said, if you release him, you're no friend of Caesar. We'll go over your head again. And because he was more interested in his position and he knew from his own conscience, from his wife, from Jesus, all these things, he knew what was right, and he made the wrong choice. Again, folks, we've said it tonight all throughout our study. When the Spirit of God opens your eyes to the truth, you better respond. Satan will try to use your past against you. Satan will try to use your past against you, but Jesus will erase your guilt from your past, folks. And he'll give you, if you give your life to him, if you'll trust him as your savior, he'll wash you clean. He'll make you new. We're going to pick up from there next week when we gather together. We're going to talk about real quickly how even though Pilate's past came out to haunt him, God says, if you'll give me your past, I will erase it and wash it clean. The issue, though, is are you willing to give up your position in this life to allow God to erase you and erase your sin from your past? That's where we'll pick up next week. I love you. Thanks for coming. We'll see you then.